Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You know, Richard, in the various discussions we've had over the months about the terrible state of ufology, we were interviewing last week Paul Kimball, the documentary filmmaker with whom you're acquainted, and we were all talking about whether we should just tear down the walls of ufology as it exists today and find a way to create something that works because the present structure doesn't work. What do you think? Well, what is the structure itself? I mean, what you have are a bunch of individual researchers, some of whom belong to one group or another, MUFON, let's say. Um, is that the structure that you mean? Otherwise, what the structure of, of conferences? I don't really perceive much of a structure. I see a few people who take a little more initiative than others, and uh, you know that's about it. There's no money. There's no organized uh, flow of money. So I don't, I don't know what that means. I, I mean, I've met Paul, um, and we actually now get along. Uh, surprisingly, we have had not the very nicest things to say about each other in the past, but we discovered when we actually met face to face that we liked each other. There's a shocker. But I understand Paul's perspective to some extent. I know he's not a total UFO skeptic, but he's skeptical about a number of things. So I assume that there's a lot about ufology he's not happy about. What walls does one tear down? The the uh, the whole structure of exopolitics? Is that mm. one thing? Maybe? I don't know. I don't even know what exopolitics is sometimes. The thing so, I worry about I, is whether really the people sure. who participate in exopolitics know what exopolitics is. I mean, is it extraterrestrial politics? Well, how could we know? Because we aren't talking personally to any extraterrestrial people, and the people who claim to be talking with them, well, you know, I have concerns about that, very sensible concerns, I think. I agree with those. I've spoken publicly. I had an interview uh, about a month or so ago with Alfred Weber on his, his podcast or radio show. And uh, I will say that in a polite but rather firm way, I, I voiced some of my objections to Alfred's approach with exopolitics. He's a person who has talked repeatedly about establishing relations with what he calls upper dimensional ethical entities. And I simply would like to know, you know, what's your basis of knowing such a thing? And what it comes down to, and I, I will say that I pushed him on this. I can't remember if this was a private thing or a public thing, but I don't think it matters. He came down to remote viewing evidence, which I said, look, you're talking to a guy who actually, I do believe to a large extent that there's something to remote viewing, and I do, and you want to take me on it, by all means, question me. But that doesn't mean that I think you can use it as valid evidence for this kind of position, at least in any kind of dogmatic way. And Alfred, you know, he does this. And then there's people like Greer, Stephen Greer who uh, talks very definitively about the nature of these aliens and as if he knows 100% what they're like, uh, so dogmatically that he'll say, well, if you had an, an alleged abduction experience, then it must have been a military abduction. Yeah. It's, you could not have had an actual alien abduction, to which I'm like, come on. So, you know, there are positions among some of the people who have been prominent in exopolitics that I would take issue with as well. To call that the, the sorry state of ufology, well, I don't, I don't see how it's been any different than than at any other point. You know, you go back to the at least from the 19, uh, late 60s onward. MUFON has had its ups and downs. Uh, MUFON in the 1970s got started with what's now called scientific ufology. That was their big thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is what, what you're talking about, a return to. I mean, the, the whole point of that was after the Condon Committee 
kind of shut down UFOs in the public you know, venue after 1969. It was a real slap in the face by the world of science, the academic world of science, against UFO research, right? Because it was like of no scientific value and so on and so on. So the reaction among a number of UFO researchers was, okay, well, you make a good point. So let's try to establish ufology as a scientific discipline to the best of our ability. And hence the phrase scientific ufology became the, the catchphrase of uh, MUFON and of KUFOS to a large extent during the 70s and beyond. That's a good thing and not always a good thing because scientific ufology was a very apolitical or anti-political development. There was no emphasis on any kind of cover-ups and conspiracies. So for a guy like me, I mean, I'm sympathetic to approaching it scientifically, but I also see that there are other avenues of UFO study. And the other thing was, a purely, what is a purely scientific approach? Does that mean you don't make conclusions? So how, how much research do you need before you make conclusions? There was a very strong conservative tendency in that whole movement, which exists to this day, which not everyone's comfortable with. So that's if you want to be as ultimately rigorously scientific as you can. Then you get people to talk about peer review. Maybe that would make things better. Well, personally, I have my own problems with peer review. I voiced these in the past. I did it, in fact, at a MUFON symposium about five years ago, and not everyone was happy with what I said. But the question is, who's doing? who are the peers who are going to review my work? Peer review, in a lot of ways, can be looked at as a form of intellectual and social control by an established group of people in power against other people. And it, there's no inherent reason that peer review is all that great anyway. I mean, the Supreme Court is essentially a kind of peer-reviewed organization, and they've made a lot of bonehead decisions. So, um, well, it's as good as the peers. Not, it's as good as the peers. Or exactly. as bad as the there's peers. The, but the other issue is, and it's in terms of scientific research, the other issue is disclosure, because we always regarded, for example, as someone like the late Major Donald Kehoe as a scientific researcher. Right. But he was talking about disclosure from almost day one. we got to have congressional hearings. The government knows the truth about UFOs. They have a silence most group there. Well, that was his stock in trade. Absolutely. And I would actually disagree, and, and I would not call Kehoe a particularly scientific researcher. I think he was a very political person. A good researcher, and I'm a great admirer of Kehoe's books, but in fact, during his lifetime, he was heavily criticized by, for example, uh, Coral Lorenzen of APRO for being very anti-scientific and overly political. Right. There was an article, as a matter of fact, once saying, and I forget where it was published, so don't quote me on where it was published, but the basic premise was, how close will Major Kehoe let a UFO get? Now, remember that the Lorenzans investigated a lot of the landings, the really close encounters, yeah. people who saw entities right. coming out of the craft, mm -hmm. and the implication That's being right. that Kehoe would let a UFO come only so close, if it came too close, he would not consider it. Well, that's exactly right. And this is, in a sense, a, a less scientific attitude by Kehoe, and it was a de definitely political attitude. Kehoe was, a, he was very astute about something, which was he was living in the, in the Washington, D.C. area, dealing with political people, with military people, and he just knew, circa 1960, that you're only going to succeed in opening this topic up publicly by going so far. You go too far and you're going to lose the public. Whether or not whatever you privately believe is one thing. I think that Kehoe's private beliefs went quite a, quite a bit further than what he publicly was, was saying. But it's true, like his group, NICAP, would never uh, look into alleged landing cases or, God forbid, abduction cases. Uh, and some of them, even in, in that period of time, did 
come up every well, now and then. They had and to I, take seriously the hills, of course. That was the first right. time. That was 1961-62 when they started really looking into it. And even but that was considered almost an anomaly, an unusual case. APRO which was a lot more forward-looking. Also, though, it took a while. I mean, they got a case from the late 50s from Brazil, um, a rather well-known case today, but uh, Coral and Jim Lorenzen sat on it for quite a long time because they just didn't know what to do with this totally bizarre case of this guy who claimed he was taken aboard a ship and had sex with an alien. He wrote a very, very detailed, actually very rational account. He turned. He later became, a, I think, an attorney. He never sought publicity on this. He was embarrassed by it, uh, it, apparently. He seemed to be sincere, in other words. But um, And Kehoe was, was really ultimately a very astute political person. And, and really, I think, if you're going to criticize him on anything, it's that he wasn't really striving to be the complete scientific detached observer. He was looking into the UFO phenomenon with a very particular angle, and that angle was to, to get congressional hearings, open public congressional hearings on the matter of UFOs. And on that matter, he, he really never truly succeeded, uh, not in the way that he, he envisioned. Also, he had, I think, if you read his books and take them seriously, he had a rather naive look or feeling for what Congress was like. You know, He felt these were a bunch of honest people who would deliberately attempt to access the truth about something it didn't have political considerations didn't have constituents to adhere to didn't have donations they received from power brokers like I said a very naive view of the yeah, process I think at least at least publicly I, I've often wondered I mean look the guy was close friends with Roscoe Hillencoder who ran the CIA for a number of years he was friends with a lot of top-level Navy brass so I mean I wonder how much of that was actually straight up on his part, but it is true. He was also writing in the 1950s and 60s. It was a different era, and especially when you're writing publicly about the American political system, I mean, your assumption, and in particular if you're living in the Washington, D.C. area, which he did, his assumption was, this is our political system, our democratic republic, we're going to make it work. And so I think, yeah, he did hold out this hope that congressional hearings would really be a good way. And, and in fairness, they hadn't been tried. Uh, the UFO phenomenon was a, a very new kind of thing in the American psyche. I mean, even in the late 50s, it had only been kind of a 10-year, you know, in the public eye. So I don't think it was a completely unrealistic goal to shoot for, being positioned where he was in D.C., knowing a number of congressmen uh, and women, well, congressmen. So, yeah, it's... Not an unrealistic thing. Many years later, you've got guys like Greer essentially trying to do the same thing, you know, and again, it failed utterly. But I think Kehoe at least can be forgiven a little bit more for at least uh, thinking that maybe it's worth a shot. He did have some supporters in Congress, uh, from what we know, and, and uh, who gave him at least reason to think that they would try to raise the issue. And in fact, I mentioned this in my book, it looks like there was a planned open congressional hearing that was going to happen for April 1962, and it was going to feature Roscoe Hillencoder, who not only ran the CIA for three years, but also was a founding board member of NICAP, Kehoe's organization. And Hillencoder was going to speak before Congress in the spring of 1962, and at the very last minute in, uh, I think, February of 62, told Kehoe, look, changed my mind. I think the Air Force is doing everything they can on this matter, and I think that we really need to, to cut them some slack. And by the way, I hereby resign my membership uh, from NICAP. And that was the end. So, I mean, it looked like someone had gotten a Hill encoder, but it also looked like the congressional hearings might have happened. But the question here is, who got the Hill encoder? And 
did anybody ever try to track that lead down? No. Well, we, we really will never know who got to Helicota. Presumably it was either CIA or Navy. Uh, those are his organizations. But, hey, it could have been a meta group, like an MJ-12 type of organization, right? Very, very possible. In particular, if uh, you give any credit to the alleged MJ-12 documents of which he was supposed to have been a member. So who knows? Um, has there been any investigation of that? No, none, none. I mean, getting, I don't even know where Hillencoder's papers are, and even if they're all public. Hillencoder's one of these guys that there's almost nothing on him publicly. I've, I've looked many times for scholarship on this man, just amongst straight-up academic historians, and there's basically nothing. And I mean, intelligence journals, uh, academic journals. Roscoe Hillencoder just slips by the boards. Ooh. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, leave me a message, I will call you back, or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's, I listen to the Paracast, here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Richard Dolan returns to the Paracast, and this is just going to get better and better. David? Rich, you're a politically savvy guy. You're uh, the kind of person who will go in and do hard research. How have you been able to tackle this issue when it appears that we have at least two actual histories of reality? We have the written history, and we have what actually happened. How do you delineate the two? How do you try to incorporate elements of what I call the actual history, the things that aren't written down? Is there any way, and and I'm literally asking this just out of frustration, Mm -hmm. is there any way to try to figure out what really happened versus what was documented? That might not be a fair... I understand what you're saying. It's it's really at the core of the issue of of what I tried to do. I mean, look, especially in the early years when I started dealing with UFOs, I felt absolutely schizophrenic that I was dealing with an official and an unofficial kind of reality. And I had to try to integrate that because it's a very simple matter. If the UFO problem is real, if there's a cover-up, then our interpretation of a lot of our main, his, our major official history is questionable. The whole history of the Cold War has to be rethought with this new factor brought into play and much, much more. So I've tried to do that. The, the way that I go through the UFO history is there is factual data that I can work with. And it may not be widely known, but it is publicly available. Um, and that is in the form of sightings from military and reputable government sources. In other words, if there's a military document dealing with a UFO encounter, I personally consider that very important. And there's a fair amount of that, even for the last 30 years. There's there's quite a bit more for the early parts of the Cold War, but there is a sufficient amount of good documentation for the last three decades that this is something we can work with. And if you take that as a known quantity then that's a good place to start. Uh, Go back to uh, the 1975 cases, which I find very, very fascinating. These are um, along the northern U.S. border and into Canada. And late part of that year, there was a series of absolutely awesome airspace violations over U.S. and and, uh, Strategic Air Command bases by objects that to this day have never been identified. They don't appear to have been helicopters. That's the only uh, conventional explanation that really would, would make any sense, but it doesn't fit what we have in terms of the data on this. So what we know is that something happened at a number of bases to trigger high alerts being sounded, military police response, fighter jet response, and the like. And this happened over a long period of time, about a month, and and elicited no, next to no public acknowledgement, although we know it happened. So that's, that's a known quantity. And that's something that is absolutely necessary and, and valid to bring into our conventional history. So if that's true, then I think it's a reasonable position to say that, that this is something important that's been covered up. And that's another question, right? That's a well, different issue. Let's, let's, let's get into some details on that, Rich. Are we talking about structured craft? Are we talking about radar contact with these things? We're talking about uh, radar contact in several of those cases, uh, combined with visuals from uh, military personnel on the ground, yeah. The radar, by the way, was NORAD's radar. This is um, thinking of a case of Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1975, where on two nights in a row over that base in November of that year, objects were hanging out over weapons facilities. On the first of those nights, actually, got a, a strike team was, was sent in to investigate an object over uh, one particular area of the silos. They got to within less than one mile and saw this red glowing 
thing. And they said, we're not going any closer. They actually refused to go any closer. I don't. No one even knows if there was any disciplinary measures taken against this, this strike team, but they didn't go. We know that. Uh, and on the following night, over that same base, uh, there were objects that changed in altitude from very, very low tracked-on radar going to very high, like 100,000 feet, and changing and moving around. When uh, I think it was F-104s uh, were sent into F-106s, pardon me, were sent into um, to intercept. The uh, witnesses on the ground said that the objects winked out, <laughs> and then came back on when the uh, intercepting jets left the area. Uh, meanwhile, these objects were being tracked on NORAD radar. So, you know, I mean, there's something there. There was clearly something that was being seen and tracked electronically and visually that elicited a military response that by all and any uh, plausible kind of common sense was playing some kind of cat and mouse game with our military. Now, Rich, this is completely separate. You're saying this happened in the mid-70s, and this is separate from the incident that uh, Captain Robert Salas reports about, which That's happened right. Seven. Salas's case was 1967 at the same military base. Uh-huh. That was in Malmstrom Air Force Base as well, but that was uh, eight years before. So Malmstrom in 1975 was one of several bases over a brief period of time. We're talking a few weeks in which – that was Malmstrom. That was for two nights. There, there was – Absolutely incredible sightings at Wordsmith Air Force Base during the same week that was in Michigan. Incredible stuff. Uh, at Falcon, Falcon Ridge uh, in Canada, just over the border, incredible stuff. Over uh, going east at Loring Air Force Base in Maine, absolutely major, major, you know, top-level alarms were going off by objects that were hovering, in in that case of Loring, a couple hundred feet over a weapons uh, facility. You don't just go in there and hang out there. And this object was just hovering stationary. If it was a helicopter, then it was a silent helicopter in 1975. And there's just no, we have no evidence of such a thing. So if it was, that's interesting in itself. So all I'm saying here is that there is sufficient factual information that we have that we can use to piece together a history. And if this is a known quantity, and I'm treating it, I mean, I'll make no bones about it. I'll treat that as a known event. That, to me, is uh, de facto evidence of a cover-up of UFOs. That doesn't prove that UFOs are alien, but it does prove to me that these objects were very much more sophisticated than our own aircraft at the time, and that they were of an unknown origin. Well, certainly in the description of Robert Solis's uh, situation in 1967, the fact that whatever these craft were, they were able to disable more than a few nuclear missiles. Uh, approximately France. 20. Yeah. Ten, in, uh, ten missiles in his area and then ten in another area. Now, that would suggest something beyond what would have been current technology at that time, even at the highest level absolutely. of the military, right? I mean, absolutely. There, no, there's absolutely correct, yes. There's no, there's no weapon that we know of at, at 40 years ago that could do this. I'm not aware of anything. And, you know, are there weapons are today that can do it? Maybe. Maybe it's classified. We don't know about it. But certainly 40 years ago, there's nothing that we know of that could have done such a thing. Well, it, it sort of suggests some sort of electromagnetic pulse device that would essentially short-circuit all electronics in a certain determined uh, radius. When we talk it's, a reasonable, about- it, it's reasonable, except the, the one thing about the Salas case from 67 was that uh, those were owned by Boeing. And Boeing made them anyway. And... In fact, we know, we have the report that Boeing scientists 
examined the missiles and looked into the, the cause of the shutdown. And all that we know is that they were not able to determine why these missiles went down. I mean, according to the Boeing people, there's no reason these missiles should have gone offline, and yet they did. Now, they, they weren't really taking into consideration that there was this glowing object seen by ground personnel directly above the missiles that shut them down. But even if you consider that, they, they don't they didn't have a theory uh, that I know of as to how those missiles got shut down. But any impulse seems to make sense as far as what I know of that kind of thing. But, you know, that, that brings up another a whole other can of worms, Rich. You know, you've got the official explanation, we don't understand. Is there then the unofficial explanation? Well, this is what we think it is, but we can't release this information because uh, it will open up too many other questions. Uh, again, getting back to this idea of official... Clearly, yes. Clearly, yes. Absolutely. Look, it's not hard for anyone to understand this, I think. Let's, let's look at the secret keepers in the most uh, positive, you know, benefit of the doubt light. They want to avoid public panic. Just recently, in preparation for my second volume, not long ago, I was reviewing the entire uh, case from the early 1980s, the Hudson Valley tri- uh, boomerang sightings. Right. Uh, this is very well known to a lot of people in the field, and, and they really they're fascinating. And I, and when I revisited them in, while writing the history of that, you get the same kind of situation where over a densely populated area, over a, a very uh, over a two year, you know period where this was really heightened number of sightings from 83 to 85. Just north of New York City, I mean, a lot of people were living in the in Putnam County and Dutchess County. Actually, my girlfriend is one of the people who was part of those sightings. My girlfriend saw those craft in the mid-80s. Fascinating. I have uh, relatives who, who still live in Poughkeepsie. Uh, I've myself been up to Poughkeepsie many, many times. But the thing is, those... Those craft, all right, they were most common shape that people saw were boomerang type craft. Now, there's no, there's no official boomerang craft in 1983 or today for that matter that can behave like this. And yet these objects were seen repeatedly low over the Taconic Parkway at, mm-hmm. at altitudes of a couple of hundred feet, yeah. shining intense, bright spotlight lights down to the ground right from the beginning you had a lot of people seeing this and they got local publicity right from the beginning the FAA was doing uh, damage control on this from the beginning uh, coming up with all kinds of absolutely BS types of explanations that were just not credible so the first one that was tossed out was that these were a bunch of ultralight aviators and ultralight is you know basically like a glider with a motor attached to it yeah. and a seat that's really what an ultralight is flying in tight illegal formation at night somehow equipped with these heavy spotlights I mean it's impossible absolutely impossible once that became shown as, as a lark as just a red herring then the theory was military flights so there's a, an air force base nearby there but actually, that did not hold water. Um, when you look into the specifics, if so, these are military flights where these pilots are wandering all over, up and down in every direction, aimlessly, as it were. You know, and the aircraft happen to look like boomerangs. You know, this makes no sense. So, in other words, what I'm saying is, if the FAA were to be up front. I mean, think about what would happen. First of all, this is a bureaucracy, and in any bureaucracy, these are designed to stifle initiative and to stifle responsibility for anything whatsoever. You don't stick your neck out if you're a bureaucratic kind of person. It's almost by design. The FAA, can you imagine if they were to say, yes, apparently there's some big-ass boomerang that is flying over the Taconic Parkway. We don't know who it belongs to, uh, but tell you what, we're going to look into it. I mean, that's, you know, that would cause crazy, crazy stuff. public panic and questions that would be raised 
that would not be easily answered. I mean, because once you admit publicly that there's this situation, then what that really means is you have to do something about it. And what if you really can't do something about it? And you know you can't do something about it. Then you're, you're in, you know, in an unwinnable situation. Right. So I think the best thing for these guys to do is, is to admit nothing. Like a guy who's been caught, you know, cheating. He's just like, don't admit anything. Don't admit anything. No, 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 no. Oh, no, you must have misinterpreted that. Uh, as long as possible, because once once the knowledge of those craft were to become officially recognized, uh, that would change everything. Even if everyone knows, but no one admits it. Uh, like you know, like truth in the old Soviet Union. Everyone knew that the Gulag Archipelago had resulted in the deaths of millions of people. Everyone knew it. Through the 60s and 70s, it's not like, oh, wow, we have no idea. They just weren't able to talk about it publicly until Gorbachev came into power. And and I would really point this out as a relevant analogy. Once he did that in 85, 86, and once it became apparent that you could bring up the real Soviet history, it only took six years for that country to go down the tubes. Yeah. There was no Soviet Union after 1991, and it was at the process of reform. It spiraled totally out of control because you've officially acknowledged it. It's not like no one knew before. It's just you didn't acknowledge it before, and it's the same with UFOs. It's one of these things like where everyone knows pretty much that this phenomenon is real, but as long as the government doesn't admit it, they don't have to do anything about it. And I think that's the case with this entire history. Well, look, let's look at the uh, government situation, though. And that is, number one, do you think the government really knows anything more than, look, things are happening that we don't understand and that's it? Do you think they have any more detailed information, alien technology, contact with aliens, whatever? Yeah, well, it's a question is what we mean by the government. Uh, does that mean the president, basically? And I, I was chatting with uh, about a month or so ago with a very, very senior ultra-senior, let me say, uh, former CIA individual. This is an, a person who knows personally and is friends with four or five former directors of central intelligence. He knows a number of U.S. presidents, and I was able to chat with him for a while. It was very nice for me. One of the things I asked him was, okay, well, what, you know, how much do presidents know about this? And he said, well, some know more than others, or some have known more than others. He said... And this is a very thinly failed reference to the current president. He said, look, some are just mentally unstable or alcoholic, and you can't trust them. They're not psychologically stable. And there's no way in hell that people who are managing this long-term project are going to entrust any of this knowledge with someone who's just here for the short term and is, is not reliable. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You are Luke Erickens with James Spangler and David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Richard Dolan. And by the way, we do have a special request of you. As you may know, if you're looking at the site at theparacast.com, we are conducting a listener survey. And you're going to hear me talk about it for the next few weeks. And that is, this survey is for you to fill out for you to participate, and it will help us learn more about you, no matter how long you've been a listener to the Paracast, how frequently you listen. So please take a few minutes and visit our website at theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. The listener survey link is right on the home page on the left. It's called Listener Survey, and you can complete the survey anonymously so we don't keep your email address or anything like that. Please help us out. And now back to the show. Already, you're looking at that, and they're making a value judgment about the state of the president of the United States. I mean, they're saying, well, well sure they're they saying, are. well, okay, so he's not stable. Maybe Clinton was too much of a womanizer. Maybe Reagan was getting a little senile in his latter years. You could make all sorts of right. value judgments about these people exactly. and never tell them anything because it's always going to be a downside. The impression that I got from this individual was that uh, the current president has not been told much, that Clinton was not told much, that George Bush Sr. knew a fair amount, he actually knew quite a bit, and that Reagan had been briefed, and that Jimmy Carter had been briefed, and, and those three, Carter, Reagan, and Bush, of Bush one of the recent presidents, that they knew a fair amount, how much I, I don't know, but that they'd had some kind of formal briefing on it. Uh, I was not led to believe that the last two presidents were briefed in much detail. And that's one guy's opinion, although this, this is a, a very prominent individual, I must say. And whether he's being truthful with me, all I can say is, I guess he is. Uh, you know, I can't really subject him to a poly and, and really know for sure. But the, here's the real nub, the nub, is that what I believe, Gene and Dave, is that uh, I've said this for a while now. I think that privatization is one of the real keys to, to understanding this matter. It took me a while to understand this. But, you know, rewind the clock and go back to the late 1940s and pretend that you're Harry Truman and that you've been presented with this information from your top military man or your top science advisor. Maybe Vannevar Bush tells you, sir, we have recovered technology that did not originate from this civilization. Okay, let's say that this happened. So that, in other words, it's not simply that you're told of the existence of these objects, but that you have, we've got possession of some hardware. And to me, this is the real crux. So now you're the president and you've got this information. What do you do with this information? Well, I, I don't think that you would necessarily share it, at least not right away, uh, because if you share the information, then ultimately you, you may be more likely to share the technology. It becomes harder to hide it. So that's not a, a practical thing, especially in the early years of the Cold War, you may not want to just hand this stuff over to the Soviets. So what you would do, I think, is say, you know, keep this ultra secret, put together a team, yada, yada. But now you've got this hardware, and how do you study it? Because certainly you'd want to do that. Well, if you're the Air Force or the Army and you've got this, you know, and sure, you've got your own scientists, your own guys, but let's face it, who are the best people to study this? And I would say it's probably defense industry uh, scientists and R&D guys because they build the most advanced weapons and aircraft and so on. I mean, they have the facility. They've got the infrastructure. So I think what happened very early on is that deals were made between the military and places like Lockheed and Boeing and Raytheon and General Electric and General Dynamics and all those guys on a limited basis with compartmented 
technology. And essentially, you know, I'm sure the lawyers hammered everything out appropriately, and, and Lockheed would say, sure, we'll take this, we'll study it, we get all patent rights right, you know, any any developments we get, and you can retain access to the, the piece and so on. And so everyone's happy, and it's win-win. It's the Corso scenario. But that's does right. that mean – And I think that's right. I think that's what happened. Well, but does – I believe that is exactly what happened. Not because Corso said it. Well, that's, I believe that's exactly yeah. what happened because I think that's exactly the most logical thing that you would do. The, the entire U.S. military is dominated by defense contractors anyway. I mean, once these generals retire, where do you think they go? They go work for these industries. Yeah. So it's a revolving door. There's every incentive in the world for passing this off to private industry. And there have been a number of insiders who have talked about privatization, not just Corso. Uh, ben Rich, when he was before he died over at Lockheed Skunk Works, made this statement. A number of prominent people have alluded to it, and I think that is exactly what has happened. So that the technology is not so much classified as, as it has become proprietary. And now there's one thing that I also think backs this up, and this is something that we can thank uh, Stephen Greer for. And that is about 10 years ago, in 1997, when Greer was uh, at that time working with Edgar Mitchell still. This is before they stopped working together. But in 1997, Greer and Mitchell together were attempting to brief members of Congress and also members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Greer wrote about this in his most recent book. I happen to have gotten on other sources that laid this out very, very clearly to me personally and essentially supported everything Greer said on this, which was that in April of 97, Greer and Mitchell met with the then head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, whose name was Admiral Thomas Wilson. Now, I asked Edgar Mitchell about this. Mitchell said, yes, we did. I asked uh, Greer. He said, yes, we did. I had another elite individual who knew all of the players involved who told me all about this. And then I finally asked Wilson himself if this meeting took place, and Wilson eventually admitted that it did. When I first brought this up with him, he pretended he didn't remember anything. I mean, how do you not remember that you're meeting with a moonwalking astronaut? I, yes, I know you're a busy man. You're you know, worried about weapons of mass destruction, whatever, but you're not going to remember an astronaut and this other guy coming up to you talking about black budget alien technology programs that are totally rogue and private and beyond government control? Because what Greer and Mitchell did is they came, they approached Wilson, they met with him, and they said, look, within the Pentagon, within certain of your special access programs, and by the way, said Greer, these are the specific programs. He had data indicating the names and numbers of these programs. He said, these are alien technology replication programs, and they by all appearances, appear to be beyond any kind of formal government control. They appear to be dominated by contractors. And we feel that as you, as the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs, as a representative of the government of the United States, should try to get control over this. And Wilson, according to Greer, and according to my source, totally independent of Greer, tried and failed to get access to this program and was told, uh, sorry, sir, you don't have a need to know. And, and the people who blew him off, by the way, were not military people. They were the lawyers and accountants for this special access program and other private individuals all right, who got their hooks into the, the Pentagon's you know, slush fund. So in other words, what Greer has been saying and what I agree with is that the special access program system in the Pentagon, and there's a whole bunch of other types of secret 
programs. There are unacknowledged special access programs. And then there are what are called waived unacknowledged special access programs. And then there are even more secret programs than that called alternative compensatory and control measures, ACCMs, which none of these have any oversight. But in the, in the case of this one that Greer was talking about, it looks to me that this was dominated by private contractors who are basically using public tax dollars to get uh, research and development and security money on this program for their own profit. And that a representative of the U.S. government, the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs, was unable to gain access to this program. So if that's true, that's kind of a big deal. When I called Wilson, he had no idea that I was this UFO researcher. I kind of had portrayed myself as just a standard historian and wanted to interview him, and we started getting into this. And I said, look, you know, this is what has been said about you, and he, he got very, very angry. He got very upset with me, actually. But really, what's he going to do? Is he going to admit this? To admit such a thing is tantamount to bringing the house down. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Richard Dolan joining us for a full session. He is author of UFOs in the National Security State. You're working on a second edition. Where does that stand? I am indeed. I guess um, the narrative part is approximately 50% done, and that's actually further along than you might think because it took me several years of just plain research without writing a single word of narrative. I really had to gather my um, facts together before I could even consider writing any of this narrative. So I've been writing the narrative uh, roughly for the last year or so. Um, I think think I'll have the whole thing done within a year. I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about it at this point. It's been taking me forever, I know. The book's probably not going to be less than 700 pages, though. It's just going to be a big, fat book. So once it's done, my goal will be to take a nice long vacation or jump off of a bridge. Either way, will be just fine. (laughs) This book has been over my head for the longest time, and I I love the topic. I continue to be fascinated by it, but uh, in truth, I will be very, very glad to be done with it. With UFOs, you kind of feel quite often whether you should be jumping off that bridge. David? Rich, I was uh, <laughs> talking yeah, about going over bridges, David, right? <laughs> uh, Rich, I was in attendance at your talk at the X conference, um, and I've been really dying to get you back on the Paracast since uh, that event. Uh, I really think your presentation was certainly one of the most coherent, absolutely one of the most informative. Interestingly enough, the bulk of it was not spent talking about UFOs, but instead painting the, the, the context, the framework for how secrecy could happen and how this could be kept under covers. Based on what we're talking about here today, it, it really does sound like 
effectively, Eisenhower was right. The military-industrial complex seems to have effectively taken over the chicken coop. That being the case, and, and I'm assuming for a moment that there's a lot of reason to believe that's true, uh, certainly from what we've seen in the last six, seven years in the history of the United States, there's a lot of evidence to support just that. Does that mean that it's going to be effectively impossible to come to any real source of information that we can put out in front of the public saying this is what the true nature of this is, or is this just so buried? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, one of the, the key theories that current uh, disclosure advocates, guys like Stephen Bassett, rely on is the fact that we have a democratic government and that we have a media and that we've got a Congress that's actually worth a damn. And what we need to do is use the system itself to promote openness. While I, I believe in trying to revive our corpse of a republic to the greatest extent possible, I don't really have much confidence that that's going to happen. I do believe that it does matter. When you're trying to get disclosure, it matters what kind of government you have. Do you have a true democratic government or do you have some kind of authoritarian system? Um, I think one of the problems that we've had in our society is that I mean, people kind of know that there's something very, very wrong with our society. They can feel it. They can smell it. You know... But they don't really know what we have. Do we have fascism? Is it really fascism? Is it really democracy? Is it something different altogether? Is it some kind of combination thereof? Is something new? There's not a lot of political education in our schools, in our universities that really deal with this. So I don't think people are prepared. So there's no conceptual tools that most people have to understand what we've got. I do believe that we've, we've moved increasingly into a more authoritarian kind of system. Not like 1935, the Nazi state. It's different. You know, fascism's always going to look different. It's 70 years later. It's not going to look like stormtroopers marching lockstep up and down the streets, you know, doing Z Kyle and with the flags waving all the time. It's, it's going to look maybe a little more like TV, maybe a little, look a little bit more like an entertainment state, kind of like Huxley's Brave New World, perhaps, or some kind of version thereof. But it will make it more difficult to get the UFO secret out. I do believe that that's the case. The one thing that I feel disclosure advocates have in their favor is that the pace of history is so fast right now that it's, it's a very unstable situation. I mean, think about the development of the Internet. Go back 20 years from 1987. There was no Internet, so to speak. A couple of bulletin boards was really the extent of it. And so if you were a keeper of secrecy at that time, you actually might be somewhat optimistic about your ability to manage this with, with uh, centralization of media that was then going on rather rapidly. You know, you, you could think it's possible. What happened with the Internet is that it was an unforeseen development to a large extent, I think, and, and really is the true bastion of freedom in this world today. Not that there aren't problems with the Internet. Of course there are, but it really is the key place where freedom exists. So what will happen in another 20 years? Are there going to be other unforeseen developments? I think the answer is yes. I don't know what they'll be, but I do believe that the pace of technological change is going to continue to drive economic and political changes. And so there's going to be an unstable situation for quite a while. And in an unstable situation, I do believe that there are going to be opportunities for openness. After all, in periods of political regime change over the past 30 years, there have been instances in which 
UFO information has come out in, in significant ways. It came out after the death of Franco in Spain. It came out in China after the death of Mao. It came out in the Soviet Union when that country was falling to pieces. And it could come out in the United States because I do think that we are in a position where uh, such change is possible in the next five to ten years. So I guess that's the one thing. Um, nothing's going to stay the same. We can't assume that reality is just going to be this way again and again. But but the trend for the last few decades, not just the last seven, eight years since the Bush administration, even in Clinton, there's there were serious major trends towards centralization of data by federal you know government by corporations. There was the whole. I mean, globalization really took place long before we had Bush in, in the presidency. So yeah. these, these trends have, have been going for a long time. And Quite a long we're, time. we're at a point now where, where freedom, and by freedom, I guess, let's say self-governance, that is the right of individual citizens to control their government and to, you know, read government, you know, to learn about their government, to have transparency of government. We're probably at a low point in, in our history on that matter. No, I, I would so absolutely agree with you, Rich. I mean, recently I caught some hell on the Paracast forums because I stated that once a week, on an average, sometimes more than that, I call Hillary Clinton's office and I call uh, Chuck Schumer's Washington office. I call the White House. I voice my opinions. Now, in our society, it's gotten to the point where people say, Oh, you know, that's just, you're just blown in the wind, man. That That's uh, the equivalent of mental masturbation. No one's listening to you. They're not going to do anything about it. And the thing is, it, it always occurs to me that part of the reason the Reagan revolution happened in the 80s was that the uh, fundamentalist right of our society was uh, mobilized. They were put on the phones by their leaders. They They got on the horn and started making calls. And that this ended up actually doing something. Is it the definitive solution? Absolutely not. At the same time, and just FYI, I've gotten into some uh, polite arguments with Paul Kimball over the definition of fascism, where he has a problem with anybody even vaguely referring to what's happening in the United States as any form of fascism. He said, this is not the Nazis. Well, yeah, meanwhile, the term fascism was actually really coined to describe what was happening with the Mussolini regime in, in Italy. This was, not, this was not about the Nazis. And if one looks at a, at a dictionary definition of fascism, it's an authoritarian and nationalistic right-wing system of government and social organization where uh, it's but all it's about... extensive corporate uh, collaboration, incidentally. Absolutely. A contempt for democracy. I, I like Paul. Uh, I've come to like him. I think he's a genuinely good guy. And I think he's an honest person, too. But yeah. he's, he's a lawyer. And as such, you know, I think his biggest weakness is that he's he's subject to very narrow legalistic thinking about a lot of yeah. issues, including the UFO issue and including a lot of political issues. And so he's one example of a person who will not understand that fascism – if you want to restrict your knowledge of fascism to the historical phenomenon of the early 20th century, then you're going to – you're going to not understand what's going on today. Right. There's something happening today, and no, it isn't exactly like Hitler. It isn't no. exactly like Mussolini. But again, we're living in a different era. We're living in a different version sure. of that. Uh, I've called it invisible fascism. That's my own term that mm -hmm. I coined. Invisible for two reasons. One is that mainstream media will not acknowledge it. I mean, with Hitler, it was in your face. You knew you were in a Nazi or fascist type of state because he told you. Now, in America... 
or in Canada, uh, that wouldn't go over very well with the people, would it? I mean, no. ordinary citizens are going to say, like, what do you mean, fascists? Screw you, pal. So you can't just come out and say it. And I think those people who are in positions of great power, they understand this. So they're not going to call it fascism. You're going to call it freedom, for God's sake. And the other reason it's invisible because mainstream media, as I say, is part of the problem. You know, the top levels in the media and the top political people and the top other corporates, I mean, they all marry each other's kids off to each other. They all go to the same schools. Uh, they go to the same parties. Who controls whom? I don't know. They all control each other. But the media won't, won't cover it because, you know, NBC, for example, is owned by General Electric, largest defense contractor in the United States. GE, baby. They're not going to deal with this. The other reason it's invisible is, as I indicated before, is that people don't see it because they don't have the conceptual tools to understand it. I had this insight one day. I was watching my children play at a neighborhood park with a bunch of other kids. And I was watching all these kids having a, a really fun time. It was a beautiful fall day. And, and I had all this stuff on my mind, the stuff that we're talking about now. And I thought, you know, these young people have no idea of the kind of world that they are living in. No. And then it occurred to me, do their parents really have an idea? Well, probably not fully. No. So I thought, well, is it possible to live in a fascist state without realizing it? And that was the question I had. I think the answer to that is yes, of course it's possible. And I think something like that is what we've moved into. And if you don't want to call it fascism, then you know the thing is we need to understand what it actually is. I'm not sure if I know what it is. Is it truly accurate to call it fascist? I don't know. It's just a word. But it's not freedom. I know that. No, I think of it as corporate feudalism. That's the term that comes to my mind because ultimately that's how it seems to be playing out. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good term. I've, I've often thought of writing a book called The New Feudalism. I've, I've wondered about this a lot. Back in the days, I actually read Adam Smith a million years ago. I mean, I can say that I read The Wealth of Nations, so there you go. And uh -huh. one thing that Adam Smith said that you need in a free economy, he said basically you need two fundamental things. You need free movement of capital, so that in other words um, – Investors can invest wherever they want without restriction from government. Uh, in other words, anti-mercantilism. And you need free movement of labor. So that in other words, people can move wherever they want. And what I would submit is that what we've moved toward in this world is really where one half of that equation is in place. So the capital can invest really wherever. But people in practical terms really can't move wherever they want. If they could, you know, we'd have every border would be open and uh, and that's obviously not the case. So you have are corporations that go to the lowest bidder. So they don't like it in the United States. They'll go to Mexico. They don't like it in Mexico. They go to Guatemala. And sure. if let's say you're in Guatemala and you're working uh, making shirts for J.C. Penney for uh, you know a buck a day or whatever, and, and let's say that you happen to be a genius and you happen to be Superman, so that you realize that you're being exploited. And against all odds, you form some kind of union, and you're not found on the side of the road with, with your limbs chopped off, but you actually succeed in creating a union, and you improve your wages. So some bean counter at, at Penny's corporate is going to look this over and say, oh, that's an expensive operation. Let's go to the Philippines. Yeah, that supplier is no longer, uh, no longer viable. Yeah. Right. So that that's the world. So in other words, it's like feudalism because just like a serf is stuck to the feudal manor, you can't, you're not quite a slave, but you can't leave either. So too, you have captive national populations who really they can't 
leave their country in practical terms, most of them. But yet the corporations can go wherever the hell they want. And so what that does, if you look at Adam Smith's theory, is it artificially drives down the cost of labor, right. as I see it. Sure. That's that's a kind of new feudalism, and uh, I'm not. I don't really have the economic chops to write such a book, but maybe someone out there will hear this and say, "Ah, oh, yeah." So the realistic dynamics of the world as they work today, as it works today, and a lot of the listeners of the Paracast complain to us when we veer off into getting into some of the political background of these topics. The thing is, you have to do this. You have to understand the algorithm of how the world works if you're going to try to get any useful understanding of any aspect of reality. I agree with you. The, the real problem is, as I see it, this is my opinion, I'd like to know what both, both of you guys think here. You know, I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who does not belong to either of the major political parties in this country. The last few presidents I voted for have been um, independent candidates. I voted for a libertarian guy in 04, Al Bednarik, okay? I'm a fan of the Lou Rockwell uh, site on the internet, if you're familiar with uh, that stuff. I'm totally into Lou Rockwell. So I don't really, I'm not part of either of the parties. I think they're they're very, very corrupt, um, kind of lost. But what you find within the years of the Bush administration is that people who have supported George Bush from the beginning and who support him today, I have many friends who are in that situation. And I have to be honest with you, I cannot talk to these people about some of these issues. They will not listen. I feel like they put their hands over their ears and they just say, I can't hear you, because they, they take any of these criticisms of massive federal power as a criticism of the guy they voted for. Right. You can't talk about 9-11 to these people for the same reason. They get very, very defensive. And when I try to tell them that, yes, I do believe 9-11 was an inside job, but that, that can mean a lot of different things. Okay, It could even mean there's a lot of international players involved, which I think is probably the case. You know, But the, the tendency for people who support, who are very staunch members of the Republican Party, is they, they get very defensive. And it's hard for me to talk to some of these people. Some of them write to me. They get very angry. They think I'm some kind of uh, flaming liberal uh, pinko commie. And I'm like, what? I run my own small business here. Um, you know, I homeschool my children. I have no faith in the public education system in this country. I mean, there's a lot of things personally which, which uh, conservative people really like about me. But because I criticize the presidential administration, and I do believe that we're in the darkest presidential administration in our history... I'm with you on that. Okay. So people who voted for, for this guy, they get suckered in and, and they get very upset. And, and there's they are not able to do an objective political analysis because they they think any criticism of the president is like partisan politics. I don't know what to do with these people. I mean, I can try. I try to talk to them. I try to reason with them. I have a very good friend here where I live in Rochester, New York, a very nice lady who's just uh, really loves the work that I do. She supports me as a UFO writer and hates it whenever, in her words, I get political. I'll tell you what, before we get too political. You know, why can't I keep the politics okay, out? She I says, don't want to keep know? the politics <laughs> out. David doesn't want to keep the politics <laughs> out. But I would say is that the Paracast Hour Number 2 with Richard Dolan will continue in just a moment. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On hour number two of the PowerCast, we're back with Richard Dolan, and he is the author of UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 1, working on Volume 2. Hopefully, a year from now, we will see Volume 2 and see what's going on. And we've been talking so far about the political makeup of our country because a lot of that has to do with whether or not we know there is a real phenomenon out there called UFOs, whether or not the government has any information about it, more than just saying, well, there's something going on in our skies, we don't know what's going on. Does the government, as the late Philip Corso said, have alien technology? So let's kind of maybe put the politics aside because we know that everything is going to hell in a breadbasket. And David and I are firmly in agreement on that, and we don't know. But now let's take a look at some of the impact here. We had the Philip Corso story. We've had other people claim that the government or the secret government or somebody there has in their possession alien technology. What do you think? Yes, I think that that's very close to the mark. And let me go on the record and say that I think that Corso's thesis, which, uh, I mean, people have just not stopped arguing about this on either side for the last 10 years, I think that he's he was fundamentally correct. There are many mistakes in Corso's book. I pointed them out to Bill Burns, who co-authored that book with him. Uh, in fact, one of the first things I ever said to Burns, this is uh, seven years ago, I guess, was how could you let this book get out in the condition that it was in? I mean, there's factual error here and here and here and here and here. Uh, what Burns said to me at that time was, well, Corso was practically deaf. He was this old guy. You tried correcting things with him, and he wouldn't listen to reason. And so he basically put it off on Corso, which I don't buy it, uh, to be honest with you. I think what happened was that that book needed some serious copy editing and some fact-checking, but that they wanted it out. They, meaning probably Bill Burns, frankly, wanted it out in time for the 50th anniversary of the Roswell Gala festivities of 1997. And so they rushed the thing out to make a few bucks, which they succeeded in doing. Uh, the book really needed checking. I know from people who knew Corso very well who, who told me that when Corso was presented with some of the information that was in this book, he was surprised. He said, what? I said that? I don't think so. So I'm led to believe that there was uh, a veneer of not true stuff that was put into that book, but that there was a truth to Corso. And keep in mind, too, with Corso, this was a guy who in the the national security circles had a stellar reputation. He was very highly regarded and, in fact, did have a track record as a whistleblower prior to – 
talking about Roswell, and he had been had been accurate. He was able to get Strom Thurmond, who was uh, then a living fossil senator, you know, right forward to to his book. Uh, Thurmond didn't know, truthfully, that it was about UFOs, but Thurmond writes this forward, which was later taken out of subsequent editions, where he said, yes, you know, Corso's a great American patriot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Corso, in other words, was very highly regarded. I take that. I think that means... That means something to me. Well, you know what? Um, I saw the interview, and David did too, that was done by James Fox in that documentary, Out of the Blue. And the man I saw in that interview was a pretty straight shooter. And if this is what Corsa was really like, I was much more impressed with him from that interview than I was with the book. Because you basically had a popular culture writer, Bill Burns, taking this book and probably trying to make it good as far as readability is concerned. But maybe the research fell by the wayside in the rush to get it out, as you suggest. I would love to have uh, been the co-author with Corso, not just because of the notoriety, but I really feel that I and a lot of other people could have done a very good job with that. And it's just it's unfortunate that it came out the way it did. I've I've seen many interviews with Corso, a lot of video and a lot of audio interviews that are available. I've listened to a lot, and I agree with you, Jane. He was a very straight shooting kind of guy, and did not, frankly, seem to uh, he didn't try to embellish. Uh, he didn't change his stories to, to any way that I can see. And everyone who ever knew Corso, I didn't have the pleasure of meeting the man, but I do know everyone who ever knew Corso has said this about him, that he was um, you know, a very scrupulous individual. So what am I to think? I'm thinking he's probably telling the truth. The only thing you could say against him is that he maybe he got old and senile and, and just failed to remember things and was manipulated by people around him. But when you look at this guy in the interview, it's that's not particularly apparent. So, so I would say that I think he's right. I think, and and you know, Corso also never claimed that he was the only guy to pass off technology. By the way, I mean, you know, for a, about a year there in sixty, I think nineteen sixty one, he had access to some stuff that he segued into private industry. Uh, there's no evidence or no reason to believe that he was the first or the only one. He had something uh, that was sitting around, and and uh, I'm assuming that there were other people in similar situations even earlier than Corso. Well, I didn't get the impression from even reading the book, as much as it might have been changed from what really went on, that he pretended to believe he was the only person. He was the bag man for his boss at the Army, but he, yeah. he didn't pretend to be the sole guy who was handling this No, technology. that's true. You're right. You're right, Gene. Yeah, I, would, I think your point is well taken. I guess um, in subsequent years, you know, everyone identifies that whole process with Corso, but right, obviously, I don't think he ever made Okay, that. looking at the larger issue here, then, all right, maybe we learn more about computer technology because of alien technology, but assuming we had this kind of aircraft back in 1947 that's doing all this incredible stuff... Where do we see it today in our technology? Are we seeing aircraft that can do what UFOs can do? I don't think so. So what's happening? Is it that we have not been able to figure out what their technology is, get past yep. those limitations? Yeah. This, this is a, a big issue. I mean, how far have we gone? What I think has happened is that I would not believe that we were, have been truly able to duplicate alien technology. What I suspect has happened is that having such technology has accelerated certain avenues of our science, that in all likelihood we would probably be getting to the same place before very long anyway. And I, I think, frankly, because the advances in computing technology cause an exponential you know, growth 
in any case. So, But I do think that we've probably got a boost in certain areas. I'm inclined to think that improvements in integrated circuits could very well have been due to this. Uh, I'm inclined to think that fiber optic technology could have derived from uh, this. I mean, just judging from the description of some of the alleged artifacts that people have described. I think it, it looks like there's fiber optics involved in some of this. Uh, high tensile fibers, uh, maybe even lasers. The thing is, the, the, the beauty of privatization of the UFO problem is that you know, if you give it to Lockheed or if you give this a, a piece to Boeing, they have, you know, you get your genius scientists working on this for five years. Suddenly they come up with a eureka moment and something that's very, very patentable. And so they develop a patent. And for all intents and purposes, to the outside world, it looks like, wow, you know, Boeing, boy, they came up with this really cool thing. You really are not going to be in a position to know where it came from. Try getting these records. It's, it's almost impossible to get – because they're private records, because they belong to corporations. They're not public domain types of things. So it's actually very easy, I think, to, to keep you know, the source private. That is the, the – the alien aspect of it. So how, how much can we really know? All we can do is suspect. Um, I suspect that some of these things come from ET technology. Teflon, hell, I mean, something like that could, could very well have come from some idea that a scientist got in looking at alien technology. My thing is really not even to focus so much on what are the specific technologies we've derived because I don't, I don't see how I can know it. All I can do is infer as logically as I can. And here's what I what I feel confident in saying is that some of this technology that we've observed in the skies doesn't come from our civilization. Some of it appears to have gone down and to have been recovered. And on that basis, I must assume that we've had scientists who have been studying these uh, artifacts. And indeed, these are what many credible, in my opinion, leaks have been saying. So I put all that together, and I have to assume that we've gotten some nifty ideas based on these alien artifacts. But as far as specifics, it's a crapshoot in really knowing what we've gotten. And in also in knowing how much have we really benefited. My guess is that not as much as a lot of people say, but probably to some extent. I really believe that you don't need alien technology to explain most of our technological advances, uh, even though it seems like our technology today almost does seem magical compared even with 50 years ago. Nevertheless, I think that that's a natural function of the kind of exponential nature of technological growth, that, that it does increase, that one advance leads to another advance, which leads to an even better advance, and, you know, and so on more and more rapidly. I think that's actually what's going on, and that the uh, alien explanation is actually secondary. But still, I think it's there, if that makes any sense. Does that make sense to you guys? That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, I think what happens, what you said is is, is key, Rich. Um, you have these situations where all of a sudden there's, there's sort of a plodding pace of innovation, and all of a sudden there's the equivalent of a Cambrian explosion, where there's, yeah, some, right. there, there's some major breakthrough happens. And, a good way um, to put that. Yeah, well, basically, this is what the, the history of technology is really all about that. And, and very often it comes down to one individual. I mean, one of the things that the paranormalists, as they were, like to sort of grab onto, one of the, the, the key people in the history of technology is Tesla, where they'll always make these crazy references to Tesla. But when you actually go and you, you study the biographies written about Tesla and his own writings about his own work, what you find is that this was, um, this was a very interesting, unique individual who and essentially got the idea for AC electricity by staring at the sun. 
mean, that, that's when it actually came to him. He had this visualization of this four-pole rotary uh, circuit where, you know, this is all about a rotary engine. And I, was, I did not know that. I had no idea. Yeah, he was staring at the sun when this, this image actually hit him. Uh, so you find this kind of stuff out. And, and actually, going all the way back to talking about peer review, I mean, thank goodness Tesla's work was not subject to the peer review he would have had at the time, which would have been Edison who he ended up working for for a very short amount exactly. of time, and, and Edison screwed him. And that's when yeah. he went on to go do what he did. Had his work been exclusively subject to peer review by Edison, Edison wanted to bury this guy and really tried very hard to bury this guy. It comes uh, back very, again, David, very to the fact of a peer review committee may be good or bad depending on their political considerations. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like the memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Hi, I'm Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker with the blog The Other Side of Truth, and you're listening to The Paracast with my pals David Biedney and Gene Steinberg. You are in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We are proud to be spending our second hour with Richard M. Dolan. He is the author of UFOs in the National Security State. Volume 1 is out. Volume 2 coming next year. David, you want to continue in that vein? Getting back to, to Rich's presentation at, at the X conference, it seems to me, Rich, like what you're doing, what you were doing at that conference was extremely valuable because what, what you were setting up was, here, if you want to understand this the situation, the situation of UFOs and secrecy. Let's look at the under, underlying framework for this. We talk about black budget items and we talk about money because ultimately it's all about follow the money. If you follow the money, you're going to find out what the true history of humanity is ultimately because right. people seem to think that money and power are a new development <laughs> in the 20th century that, you know, the concentration of capital power that, uh, you know, created the secret governments and the national security uh, state that we're in, this was, uh, this was somehow a new development. And, of course, we can go back to the very beginning of when, to quote... It's the, always the, been concentrated. You're right. Always. From, from when always. man crawled out of the slime, to quote uh, the character in, uh, in Network. 
I mean, it goes all the way back to that. So ultimately, um, to the development of, of cities, if nothing else, you know, at right. least a good five thousand years. Exactly. This is the real, true human history. Follow the money. Along those lines, one of our forum participants by the clever name of Chuckleberry Finn had suggested that we try to track down a gentleman by the name of Richard Souter. And uh, yeah. another one of our participants, a member by the name of Poi, posted a link to a Google video clip of Mr. Souter talking about some of his theories uh, about how black technologies can be funded. And, and he comes up with yeah. some fascinating stuff. What's your take on Souter, Rich? Could you, could you tell us a little bit about what Souter's theories are and, and what your thoughts are about him and his theories? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Dave. I'm very good friends with Richard Souter. I would say that probably of anyone in the research fields that we are in, I've probably had more in-depth conversations one-on-one -on -one with Richard Souter than probably anybody else. I talk with him on a fairly regular basis, in fact. We have a lot of phone conversations. At the end of many of them, he and I will often think, gosh, you know, we should have recorded this because I bet there'd be a number of people who would love to have, have listened <laughs> in on, on the stuff that we were getting into. Yeah. But Richard, uh, for those who are not familiar, has written a number of books on underground bases, underground tunnels, underwater bases as well, as a matter of fact. And I think he's only written two major books on that topic. I've, I've got them. I think they're available on Amazon. Richard talks about a lot of things. He talks about the technology and the motive and the means to build massive underground bases. He believes that that's been the case. And he also talks about a lot of missing money. Starting in the mid-90s, he, he wrote his books. And, and the thing that I like about Richard's work is that he, in my opinion, doesn't overreach. So he won't say that he knows for a fact that we have a massive network of underground bases. He doesn't say he knows for a fact that even aliens are here. In fact, in his books, he doesn't really get into a lot of that. But what he does do is he makes a good case for why it's probably so. So, for instance, he brings out Navy documents and military documents showing plans to develop large underground facilities. I mean, really large underground facilities, like more than a mile deep. It's extraordinary kinds of stuff that they that they had on the drawing boards back in the 1960s. Uh, he talks about the ways to hide classified programs within classified programs within even other classified programs. So that, uh, and this type of thing absolutely goes on. He's dead on right about it, and he's just found a lot of very good inside sources that that lay this out and explain how to hide such classified deep black programs. And he talks about a lot of missing money. And I think he makes a lot of reasonable connections with all of us. And then looks into a number of probable underground base-based structures that he has personally investigated. So when you look at the whole sum total of his work, I think what you get is a very strong case for a large, a labyrinth, really, of underground bases, underground tunnels, uh, the existence of very likely uh, maglev types of train systems underground, high-speed systems to transport the covert world from one place to another, very likely from places like Los Alamos, Area 51, out to Edwards Air Force Base, and you know all of that. I think he makes a good, strong case for believing that that's, that's so. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Richard's work. I also have a high level of regard for his personal integrity. So, in other words, when I talk with Richard, I believe in his honesty, and I also believe in his due diligence. Um, when he tells me he's researched something, I mean, I just know that this guy's done the research. He sends me in the mail, I mean, all kinds of 
documents that he has found uh, going through archives. Um, he's very meticulous. He's very thorough. Uh, and he doesn't really go out of his way to, to promote himself. The guy doesn't even have a website at this point. My next question to you was going to be, why don't more people know about him and his work? You know, he's, he's one of the most unusual people I've ever known. Uh, he does a lot of personal, like, he meditates a lot, and he's very he's very spiritual in, in an iconoclastic sort of way. He doesn't seem to, I think he would like to be well-known, but he doesn't really seem to make much of an effort to do it. So uh, he just is what he is. He's a guy who, who's gotten interested in these issues and, you know, researches them when he feels like doing it. But, yeah, I have, a, I have an extremely high regard for Rich. Just out of asking this question, do you think he'd come on the show? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I'll tell you this. You get him on, and he can talk. <laughs> I, I did an interview with Richard myself. My wife, Karen, hosts a weekly show, uh, kind of a cool show, and I think she's a very good host. It's called Through the Keyhole, which is part of like uh, my website. And I, I've done guest hosting for her every so often, and, and one time I did it, I, I brought Richard on. And I was like, whoa, man, you know, Richard, let me get a word in edgewise just to ask you some questions. He will go. But the thing is, he's, he's really got so much to say. And he's, he's just a wealth of information. So I, I, I think, yeah, if you ask him to be on the show, I don't see why not. This is a polarized topic because when we start to talk about underground bases and you have the Dulce base come up, and, and there are some fairly extreme stories that are associated with the, under, the notion of underground bases. One of the things that I think it's important to differentiate between are the outrageous stories on one hand, and then the simple idea that you can construct these rather large underground bases. And in fact, many of these bases were constructed for things like the Atlas missiles. One of the things that a few years ago I became very interested in the availability of these decommissioned missile silos that you could go and buy from the government. And in fact, uh, Peter Davenport from New Fork has gone and bought one of these things in, I believe, Washington State. And he's moving himself and his, uh, his organization, which I guess is just him and himself, and he's moving into one of these things. But like with, in looking into some of these Atlas missile silos, these things have miles of underground tunnels. I mean, these things are massive. And, and the big problem, of course, when you buy one of these things is that a lot of them are waterlogged. And to try to like clear these things out ends up being not a minor nightmare. Interesting, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, and these were built back in the 60s. So if one extrapolates from that, and watching this uh, Souter video that's on Google Video, he comes up with specific gear that could be used for this, specific names and model numbers of these boring machines that are massive, that do exist. Right. So it's not like he's not pulling stuff out of a vacuum. He's actually laying down he, real hard information. He actually worked back as 25 years ago or more uh, in the construction field for a while mm -hmm. in mining. I mean, he knows, he knows something about it. He's worked with a lot of the equipment, and so it's it's kind of familiar to him. Yeah, yeah that's one of his strong suits is that he really knows the mining, the tunneling type of equipment, and says, look, you know, you can actually do this without being even obvious about it from the outside, without leaving these huge piles of dirt like a lot of people think. And yeah. he explains, I think, in a very credible way how, how it can be done. You know, you can leave the piles of dirt out there, and, and no one even notices. Uh, practically no one pays attention to these things, and you can just sell dirt and gravel to construction companies, and they don't even ask any questions. You just come pick it up. Yeah. 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 No, 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 absolutely not. Well, one of the things I found most fascinating about uh, this video presentation that he did was sort of a basic description, including the description of the patent that this particular scientist had gotten, for a system that had a maglev train 
that essentially use gravity as its primary source of propulsion energy, where you have a tube, a very, I don't know, miles long, this tube that sort of is, uh, dips down and it comes back up. Something like okay. the Lincoln uh, that yeah. connects uh, Jersey to New York, where you, know, you go down, then you bottom out, and then you come up again. So he has this idea of the maglev train that, that is essentially laying on a friction-free track, comes down, heads straight down, and, and, and accelerates based on nothing more than gravity. And then effectively, that, that momentum gets it back up to the other end. Once it hits bottom, it has that momentum, and boom, it's back up on the other end, and it, there hasn't been a major expenditure of energy. Now, from a basic physics point of view, that makes really good sense. It does. Yeah, it's very economical in a, in a yeah. physics sense. Very much so. Then the other part of that whole puzzle is is paying for this stuff. And that's another thing that Richard has done a lot of very good work on. Richard is the guy who led me to uh, the work of Catherine Austin Fitz, who I think is very well known. And Catherine was uh, number two at HUD under George Bush Sr. during his presidency and uh, did some work with the Clinton administration as well. But she's probably the leading public expert on the black budget. Uh, Richard know, knew Catherine, and he got me to talk with her as well. But Richard has done, you know, he's really looked at a lot of the missing money that she talks about. And when I mean missing money, what happened is that in 1994, there was a federal law that was passed that mandated that the U.S. government uh, provide a kind of accounting of its financial books in a business-like way uh, so that, you know, with your expenditures and, you know, your the income and the outgo and all of that. So, of course, it's impossible for the U.S. government to do that, but... But they were mandated to do so. And so periodically in the 1990s and into the early 21st century, there are periodic stories, journalistic stories, and also congressional records that will discuss not billions, but trillions of dollars of missing money. Yeah. And we only start getting these in the mid and late 1990s. There's about five or so, five or six sources, journalistic and congressional, dealing with trillions of dollars of missing money. Uh, the most well-known one was given by Donald Rumsfeld himself uh, just a, a month and a half before the before the 9-11 attacks, in which Rumsfeld was talking to the uh, House Armed Services Committee, or Appropriations Committee, and said, now, you know, here's Rumsfeld in the beginning of the Bush administration, and he was talking about the fiscal mess that he had inherited from the Clinton years. So it's not really, from that point of view, not a political liability for Rumsfeld, right? So he's saying the fiscal mess at the Pentagon is so bad, he says, that according to some of our accountants, according to our accountants, not some, he said, we are unable to account for $2.6 trillion in transactions, if that's believable, he says. That's a direct quote. Uh, you can Google that phrase and you'll find it. It's in the transcripts. Yeah. So now, when you hear unreal. that amount, it, well, unreal. it is unreal because the Pentagon's fiscal year budget for 01 was one-eighth that amount. It was $310 billion. So the obvious question arises, what was Rumsfeld smoking that he said that? Was it a miss? Did he misspeak? It's the first question that I would think. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publication for free? 
Conspiracy Journal, and Bizarre Bizarre, sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Richard Dolan, the author of UFOs in the National Security State. So was Rumsfeld, every time I think about Rumsfeld, I think of the character in the James Bond movies, Blofeld. Why, do I, <laughs> why does Blofeld. that happen? Why the hell did that, that come from, you freak? I guess I missed that one. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. the thing is, what was going on when he said that? Was it a mistake? And the reason that it wasn't a mistake is that, A, five minutes later, one of the members of Congress repeated that number. And, B, there was a news article about that statement by CBS that where it was amended to $2.3 trillion. Oh, is that all? So, so I'm assuming that, you know, he meant what he said. But if he did, then the question is, how does one make sense of this? I don't know how one makes sense of this, to be perfectly candid with you, but one person wrote to me, in fact, who, who criticized me for, for continually bringing this up, and I do, I brought this up a number of times, who said to me, look, th that doesn't mean that they've stolen $2.6 trillion. It means that they can't account for it. It doesn't say how long a period of time it was or what those transactions even mean. And my answer is... That's right. I don't know, but the question is, what does it mean? I mean, we're entitled to ask what it means. I mean, if someone says, I can't attract for eight times my annual income, well, hell, I'd like to know. What does this even can, well, can you explain this common sense hey, way to? Real simple, guys. If you said that to the IRS, they'd come and put you in jail. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's real simple. So, An average so citizen could be arrested for that. And but the, the average citizen also has to balance their own checkbook. You see, there's another That's difference right. between that and the federal government. So I can only assume Rumsfeld said it is because he thought it was politically in his to his advantage to do so. But the thing is that that amount of money is so massive. So you have to wonder where did that money come from? How long a period of time are we talking? Where did the money go? Well, I think some of it was siphoned out. Maybe not all of it. I mean, $2.6 trillion is a lot of money. But let's assume that Richard Souders' suspicion and my suspicion, I think that, that some of that has gone into the ultra-black world, the covert world, some of which has to do with UFO infrastructure. One of the sources that I talked to, of a highly placed individual, said to me that, in fact, the amount of money for this program is, is very, very substantial, and that, in fact, most of it goes to security of the program, not scientific R&D. In fact, he said seven to eight times the amount of money goes to keeping the secret to security, as it does for scientific research. And by that, I assume some of that would include built infrastructure, probably you know buildings, underground facilities, as well as guys with guns, 
and who knows what else. So that this is an expensive program. And let's go back to the whole secrecy scenario. You're the president. You're Truman, all right, and you authorize this uh, program to study the alien technology. You've got to keep it secret. So therefore, you must keep it beyond congressional oversight. By definition, you really have to. I mean, you don't want Congress to know about it because ultimately it's going to go out even from there to other places. And so it necessitates an end run around your formal political process. It necessitates basically a kind of secret government, an illegal government. And I think that's exactly what has happened. And that secrecy has gotten to be so pervasive now that it has its own its own momentum, its own motivation. There may have been very noble reasons 50, 60 years ago for initiating these programs, but uh, I'd be willing to bet that those motivations are very secondary now and that the main motivation is just for these guys to save their own ass uh, because the secrecy has been, you know, you just can't lift the lid on this without without heads rolling. Okay, but you don't want disclosure. So we have these people who have been asking for disclosure, and that goes back to Greer, it goes back to Stephen Bassett. Let's have disclosure. Let's have the government right. reveal what it knows. And there's a feeling on my part that they will never do it voluntarily they would have to be forced kicking and screaming by external events to make it happen. Am I wrong? I agree 100%. I agree exactly, Gene. That's exactly what I would say. Um, now, the hope of, of people like Steve Bassett is that one of the things that will force it is you know, a really great uh, press conference at the National Press Club, uh, maybe that gets su sufficient media attention that the issue will be forced, and it'll be like right there in front, mm. kind of on the model of what uh, Stephen Greer tried to do in 2001 with his press conference, and that, that didn't happen. I've critiqued that press conference. I'll be happy to do it here. If I, mean, I don't want to beat it to death. Poor Stephen Greer. Look, the man did a Herculean job. People can criticize Greer. He's, he's taken a lot of heat from a lot of people. A lot of it is deserved. But one thing this guy did is he filled the biggest room in the National Press Club in 2001. Not an easy thing to do. And he did get major media there. And he did get some very, very credible people inside, military-type people, to talk about government secrecy. And where he totally blew it, and I will go to my grave saying this, sorry, Stephen Greer, was in a classic case of overreach. Guy got greedy. So it's it's one thing to say there's a UFO cover-up and there's a UFO reality, and these are the people within our military who are willing to talk about it. And it's another thing to say two things, he said. One is we've got to ban space-based weapons platforms, a totally extraneous issue yeah. that had nothing to do with anything. And the other thing is tacked onto the, that, which was because Korea. the aliens are good yeah. and we're essentially alienating the aliens. Um, they're here to help us. They're not here to hurt us, basically. Mm. And that's also, you know, where do you get off saying this? Even if you believe it with all of your heart and soul, you're in Washington, D.C., talking to a very skeptical media and skeptical world. Hey, you know what? One fight at a time. One fight at a time. The free energy thing, we've got that as well. Yeah, well, right. That's exactly, exactly. And, and then we um, have Bob Dean next to Robert Salas. I mean, uh, to me, Rich and, and Gene, that's where he really blew it, is that he poisoned the pool. He put highly credible people up there next to loons. And the minute you do that, it's over. It's game over. Everything have, have you ever met Have you met Bob Dean at all, David? Uh, no, I've, I have not met him. I, I have met him. Let me say this. I think that Bob Dean is... A absolutely wonderful human being. I've met him a number of times, and I I love this man. 
Now, that's independent of what one thinks about what he has to say. And Bob Dean's made claims that back in the 1960s with NATO, he saw top-secret right. you know, UFO documents. None of that's been able to prove it. Well, but here's the thing. I've spoken to Clifford Stone on the phone, a very yeah. nice man. I don't buy what he's saying. We have to separate here... The, the person, the individual, I mean, Bob Dean could be the sweetest guy in the world. Absolutely. I think his what wife causes is... What to does someone lie? Is, are they mentally deranged? I've met Clifford Stone. I've sat in the man's living room. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see... What I see is a man who has the most extensive collection of UFO documents of any person that I've ever known okay. in his house. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right. This guy's collected who's made claims that are not provable and that are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, Clifford Stone says he saw an alien, you know, and he was on a, a moon dust retrieval unit uh, to retrieve alien technology. Yeah, that's crazy. Is there a moon dust team? Yeah, of course there's moon dust. We know that there was a Project Moon Dust. We know it existed. But Stone says that he was part of it, so he's got no proof for it. I'm not sure if that characterizes him as a loon. I think uh, he's taken a lot of heat from people like Kevin Randall about his claims. But well, I will agree with you, though, David, in that what, what Stephen Greer did was he put in unverifiable claims alongside verifiable claims. And what he should have done is just play it safe and stick with the verifiable stuff. Uh, and then on top of that, bringing in uh, – having people sing the theme from the Man of La Mancha – yeah. Uh, you know, what's up with that? And then bringing in uh, people like uh, Dr. Carol Rosen, doctor, uh, honorary doctor from an African university. Sorry, Carol, but um, who talks about, you know, what Verna von Braun allegedly told her. Right. And is it true? I don't know. You know, the thing is, when, when you go for the National Press Club, you want to hit a home run, you've got to bring in only proven sluggers who are at least have some kind of provable track record. and So I, I will agree with you that a lot of these people were not properly vetted and were not... It doesn't mean that they're all telling falsehoods. I, no. Okay. I, honestly, you know I what? actually hope that Bob Dean is telling the truth because if, he's, if Bob Dean is not telling the truth, then I'm going to be inclined to lose faith with almost every person that I meet because he's, he's truly a wonderful guy that I believe in his integrity. Okay. I'll, I'll play along with this for a moment. And, and now I'll shock our audience. I listened to what Bob Dean had to say on the Camelot Project videos. I don't disagree with a lot of what he's saying. I think there's actually some substance in there. Let me take back the loon thing, all right? Because I've known some real loons in my time, and we've had some of them on our show. In fact, there was one on a couple of weeks ago. In fact, there were a couple on a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> they're, uh, out so, they're out there. They're in our field. <laughs> in every way, they're out there. They so, are. okay, let's let's zoom back for a moment. So as far as, like, let's say Bob Dean, some of the things that he says when he brings up genetic manipulation of the, of the human species by some alien slash unknown entities, I don't necessarily disagree with that. All right? I'll go on the record right now and say that. But... It's the whole package. It's the, now I'm going to lay this out to you that a document was casually tossed down in front of me. Look at that. There's the truth. Or when we've got Clifford Stone, who again, nice guy. I've spoken to him on the phone. Sweet man. How many species exactly? Is it 76 or 67? I always get that mixed up. Uh, he could, yeah, he could I don't have, know where he gets from. Well, he you could know, have an extensive collection of documents. Listen, here's the thing. 
what obsessive personality trait leads someone to assemble that that excessively complete collection of documents? Wendell Stevens supposedly has the most amazing photographic library of UFO photographs uh, of anybody alive. He also believes that Billy Meyer. Exactly. (laughs) So where do you draw the line? And ultimately, what it comes down to, and I really think that ultimately with all of this, with the entire paranormal field, what it comes down to is the subjective view. Because I think that part of the problem of this topic, and certainly, and this this is the conundrum I find myself in, is to try to take personal experiences and personal knowledge of this and to somehow cross-reference it with the vast database of encounters, experiences, reports, of, for example, just UFOs. When you try to create that kind of a corroboration or cross-reference, what you find is that you've got the mystery wrapped in a riddle inside of an enigma. You just you hit so many walls that I think for most people, they simply say, you know what, this was something that I experienced, I don't understand it, and I'm going to move on with my life because there are bigger issues I have to worry about, like feeding my family and paying off my house. So I'll just go deal with it. I think your points are excellent, Dave. I I think what happens with people like uh, Clifford or maybe or with Bob Dean is that I think it's very possible that a person encounters uh, something that that is true. So they encounter, like in Bob Dean's case, with uh, you know, with NATO in 1964. Did he come across uh, documents dealing with the extraterrestrial reality? Let's say that he did. Right. Uh, let's say that Clifford Stone had his experience. But then what happens is you. You know, beliefs get tacked on, and over you know, it's been many years for both of these guys. There's is no question that they meet with other people who have other ideas and get influenced by that. And then, I think what can easily happen with a person is that you get a mishmash of what you you know what happened. You know, this one thing, and then you tack on all these other things. Like, what is the basis for Clifford Stone saying that he knows that there's X number of aliens that are here? Uh, he doesn't know that from his military career as far as i know i, I don't think that he i mean i don't well, I know that he, he, that he intimates that no he does intimate that actually right but he believes it strongly right so but right. what's the basis of that belief now that's the weak link and so um but I, i'm inclined to think and this is only my gut i can't and as a historian i mean writing trying to write about these people in a responsible way i, I have to be careful as well i could never treat what what Bob Dean or what what in fact what Clifford says as historical truth? How how can I say such a thing? But my gut tells me that these guys are telling a core of truth, and that's really all that I can say about them. But what, I agree with you totally that if we're going back to, to the whole Stephen Greer 2001 press conference, that such people probably should not have been at the press conference or. If they were, then they should have been there only in a capacity, a limited capacity, you know, and and that would be that. Um, If Bob Dean claims that in 1964 uh, with NATO he saw these documents and he's willing to testify, well, I don't think that's a problem. I think um, that where Greer really made his problem was in the whole politicization of the the topic and – and talking about these aliens and talking about, you know, the need to end space-based weapons platforms. I mean, talk about tossing an albatross around your neck. That's no, never no, no. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown 
Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in a grand and science fiction tradition. You're a little paracast with Jesus and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we have one more session this evening with Richard Dolan, author of UFOs in the National Security State. David, I bet I know what you're going to talk about. But Well, sure you do. And, Rich, you were there. I think you were there for the little Stephen Greer revival session that evening at the X Conference. Where you're talking about 2007 and uh, right at Gaithersburg. Yeah, Jeez. this year. Please. I mean, that guy got up and he just lost his mind. And, and it has to be brought up. He got up in front of these people and did his little revivalist thing and came out That's with true. the most outrageous yes. stuff. I mean, I have to believe that even some of the people who might have believed it, a lot of what he had to say who were there had to look at that and go, this guy is just cuckoo. I mean, he, he said some really ridiculous stuff. And so one looks at that and goes, all right, does this mean that prolonged exposure to this content matter essentially makes your neurons turn to marshmallow? I mean, dear God, let, let me hope not. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, then we're in serious trouble, ladies and gentlemen. Right now, That's you're right. going to listen to Marshmallow's talk for the next 16 minutes. There is a problem with a lot of what Greer is doing now, which is that he is forcing people to trust him because he doesn't and he's not alone here he's but he's an important person who is not giving 
resources and, and his sources, in other words, of what he claims is his information. Uh, the one thing I will never, ever do as a writer, as a thinker in this field, is force somebody to trust me mm-hmm. on anything. Uh, everything that I try to write in, in uh, my previous work and the book that I'm doing now, I, I want it to be out in the open. Even now, I'm in a position where I do have some people who come to me in confidence and they don't want their names out. And it's an inevitable position. But even in those cases, I can, I can assure you there's no way that I'm ever going to overreach on those. And so what, what Greer had did in, in the X conference, um, you know, I took notes and I, I don't have them in front of me, but I remember some of this. I bet you remember this better than I do, David. But he did. He forced people in a position of having to trust his inside knowledge about ET and about uh, the government and all of these things, and he, gives, he oh, gave really man. no evidence. The little alien baby. Look at the little cute alien baby. Come on, you know, or or I biked 200 miles, my kidney went into failure, so then I biked 200 miles home on the same day and fell asleep, and the light being came and touched me and healed me. I was one oh, step away. Did he say that? Step. He said that? Yeah, hell yes. Gosh, I'm sitting right there. I can't. Yeah, I sheer insanity, Rich. It was sheer insanity. And in that same little uh, shtick that he did, mentioned the, oh, by the way, anybody who's had an abduction experience, you were the target of a covert military operation. He managed to work that in. Exactly. Oh, and then I was with my roommate and in the house, and I felt there was the big light outside, and... um, Gee, then the alien being was in the house. We couldn't see him, but we knew he was there. And then, and this is my favorite part, and, and you had to see I was in the back waving my hand frantically to get him to call on me to ask a question. Bottom line issue, you're saying that you can vector in craft. You have tons of footage, tons of photographs of structured craft that you vectored in. Show me one photo. Show us one piece of video. You claim to have these things. You're in front of a captive audience of people who are open to this. Well, for Christ's sakes, show it. If you, at that point, have nothing to show, you've got, like, as we see in Yiddish, you got babkas. you got nothing. Mm-hmm. End of story. End of story. Yeah, true. Uh, I, I agree with that. Uh, I've talked to a few people who uh, were with Greer in the early 90s, and all I, all I can tell you is that what they say to me, this is more than one person who said, look, they believed that Greer was for real, actually, in the early 90s. This is only only what they think. And that, in other words, was able somehow to give the appearance or the reality, maybe, of alien craft making a, an appearance for the, the people who would you know, go up onto the hilltop and kind of meditate and focus on bringing aliens down. I've talked to people who, who said they were with Greer during some of those sessions and said, look, man, it happened. So that's what they believe. But it's not also a possible. Camera, not a camera in the whole bunch? Are you kidding me? No, I know. No, it's true. No photographs. But you know you're going to a place where there's supposedly going to be crap coming in. You don't take a camera? I, you know what? That is patent nonsense. I just don't buy yeah, it. Fair I'm enough. Sorry. Well, it can't, it, can't, it can't function as any kind of evidence. That's obvious. Certainly. So uh, that's what you're left with with Greer. Here's a yeah. question that I've often wondered about with Greer, and uh, we'll probably never really know. The guy was 38 years old when, in 1993, he met – I mean, he did do this. He had dinner with CIA Director James Woolsey. Woolsey's wife, Sue Woolsey, who's a power hitter in the D.C. area. She ain't, you know, she's important. John Peterson of the Arlington Institute and John Peterson's wife. Four big shot people. 
Greer and his wife go, and the six of them have dinner at, uh, I think it was at uh, Peterson's home. Now, you couldn't say another word. I have to tell you, I've heard about this. Right. And I heard about this at the X conference, and I heard that it was a larger gathering than just six people, and that it was not what Greer represents. Now, if you've heard otherwise, please go right ahead. Well, I have heard otherwise. I have... I have never – I'd like to know what you've heard, David, because if if it was very, very different, I need to know as well because I'm, I'm writing about this. But here's how I'm led to believe what happened, that in September of 1993 – this is still in the first year of the Clinton White House uh, – John Peterson uh, approached Greer and was the person who made the arrangement for Greer to, to meet with then-acting CIA, CIA director uh, James Woolsey. And it was the six of them at Peterson's home. The reason that, that Peterson and Woolsey later got angry with Greer, because Greer publicized this whole thing, and Greer called it a briefing. Mm-hmm. Greer said, well, I briefed the director of the CIA. And in technical terms, that's totally wrong. It wasn't a briefing. It was a dinner. An informal, but, right. Right. But the way Greer described it, and which was really never refuted by these guys, they, uh, Greer said, I talked at length to Woolsey about the UFO phenomenon. They talked, uh, that is, James Wolsey and Sue Wolsey talked about their UFO sighting that they had, uh, that they were believers in it, they were into it, they were very, very, very interested in what I had to say. However that worked out, as I understand it, it was the six of them. It wasn't a larger meeting. Now, I'd like to know if it was. But if it was as it's portrayed, this is a 38-year-old doctor coming out of nowhere to meet with Woolsey, and I'd like to know what the hell was actually going on there. Mm-hmm. Greer was meeting with, I mean, he was meeting with Lawrence Rockefeller, too, at this time, because Lawrence Rockefeller was Fun. very, he was right. funny. So, yeah. so Stephen Greer got himself into a position in the late 90s where he was meeting with some serious movers and shakers on this issue at a very young age. Uh, to me, that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, I wonder, you know, is there a covert side to Stephen Greer? Do we know anything about his background other than the fact that he's an emergency room physician who's gone into this particular field since then? What else do we know about him? Was he ever a military doctor? What about his family? Uh, I don't know that he was a military doctor. He had, oh, that's a good question. And in fact, he, he's got some of this information in some of his books. He had a well-to-do family. I think he was a fairly well-connected kid, you know, through his family. Gosh, I don't know. I need to find that out. I need to know that. I just want to toss this out for a moment, though, guys, because it's interesting that you say that. How does someone like that end up in a meeting with these high-powered people? And my response to that, I'll tell you two things. In 1991, I had my own multimedia company in New York doing interactive media stuff one month. The next month, I was working industrial light and magic, doing motion picture special effects work that I had never done before. I mean, I'd never done motion picture work at all. So I go from not doing it to working at the top visual effects facility in the entire world. And the story of what happened to me while I was there, well, that is a paranormal story in and of itself. Uh, Circumstance is interesting. The second part of that is that two years ago, most of my friends had no idea that I had, that I had any interest in the realm of the paranormal. And a couple of years later, here I am talking to fine folks like yourself, Rich. Uh, we talked to Stanton Friedman. I mean, we basically had, I can go down the list of people who've been on the Paracast. You know, we came out of left field. Gene had had a good amount of experience working with some of the 
I guess, what do you want to call it, Gene? The original generation of people that in the 60s and the 70s exactly. that really sort of yeah, made I this feel. Yeah, I knew almost every one of those people, okay? But, I, but, I personally interviewed Donald Kehoe. I met the Lorenzens, Richard Hall, Jerry Clark. I met yeah. a lot of these people. Not the contactees so much, but the so-called serious researchers. The, the point yeah, is, right. if, if you're motivated, you can make some pretty amazing stuff happen just by picking up the phone. And so I'm less impressed by someone like Greer who can walk in and have a dinner with these people uh, just because I know in my life what I've done and who I've been, who I've sat around. I mean, I, I could tell you stories uh, for a whole nother week about this, these kinds of bits of serendipity. It, it really ends up half of it being about being in the right place at the right time and just being motivated, okay. honestly. Maybe, maybe that's maybe that's the answer, Dave. That that's not a bad way of looking at it. I guess it's a possibility. Yeah, yeah, you know. indeed. Well, we only have a few moments left, and this is such a large discussion; it will probably never occur to even get through it to any great extent. But maybe we. I think could. our other ones were like this too, weren't they? That always our is that way, and I'm I'm saying well, you know. again. I guess we come back to the thing. Okay, so maybe Stephen Greer did something commendable. I do notice looking at his website; they don't say much about him. At all. Like he seemed to have come on the scene in 1992, 1993 out of left field and with no prior background. Sure. I, I chatted uh, briefly with, with Richard Farley at the X conference. Oh, that's a whole story there. Uh, Farley made a rather big scene. But I chatted with Farley about Greer and he said actually he, he was following Greer since Greer first started talking in the late 80s publicly on mm. UFOs. Late 80s. Okay, but not prior uh, and really to that. Was, not so much about. Him yeah. prior to that. I'm not going to start a conspiracy theory about Greer. I just think it's possible that over the years, maybe he, in looking for a profit opportunity, aside from being an emergency room physician, which is very demanding work, he maybe have gone off into this this other thing. But then yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I know if you're going to pay what eight hundred dollars to go off and see a UFO, but you don't bring a camera. I have my suspicions about that, and but maybe it's true. Maybe he is doing that, or maybe it's some kind of government experiment. They're going in there and being well. Indeed, I, I think uh, there were cases down in Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, where they said they had uh, photographic equipment, none of which worked, according to what the story was. So it's not. I mean, there were attempts, uh, according to Greer and and the people who worked with who were with Greer, that they tried at least on some occasions to photograph these objects or tape them in some way. Uh, but that nothing seemed to work right. When we had him on the show, I offered to go to a Virginia uh, event he was doing and bring some real gear. You had Greer on? Stuff. You guys oh, interviewed him? Yeah, we've had him a couple times, actually. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. We made an offer to him, and he never followed up with it. Rich, something I want to say uh, while we're on the air. I really appreciate you coming on the show, because, and, and, and I don't want to make this into a little uh, fanboy thing, but... Really, honestly, uh, I look at the work you've done in this field. I look at your enthusiasm and, and your, your persistence, your dedication to this, uh, against all odds and rational, reasonable thought. Honestly, I, I, I know that the, there are people like Kimball, who we really like in, in general, who have had issues with you. But I look at you, and I think that you're definitely, if not one of the most uh, authentic people doing this stuff, your, your level of integrity, I feel, is, is extremely high. And I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the Paracast and talk with us. It gives me hope that maybe we can gain some amount of understanding, even though I, I'm coming to the conclusion in my life that this is just going to always be a mystery, that we're not going to really gain any real 
penetration into being able to certainly change the outcome of what this, what this might be, but the work that you've done and that you continue to do and the attitude that you bring to it, your presentation at the X conference, I mean, by far, I thought was certainly the most important, that the, the framework that you created to explain how these things can go down. I don't know if a lot of the people in the audience were really getting it. I hope they were. I want to believe that they were. But what you've done is uh, your your integrity is, I think, unquestionable and unimpeachable. You're, you're one of Thank my you, personal heroes in this realm, and I just need to say that. I really appreciate that very much. Regarding the X conference, I do think that there were a lot of people who appreciated what I had to say. And on a personal basis, uh, between you know the three of us and everyone listening, I felt that my presentation at the X conference was the most on target. I was frustrated, like you, with a lot of what was presented at that conference. So as far as integrity, all I can say is I, I do strive to be absolutely authentic. And I strive to be. I don't ever want to overreach in uh, what I have to say either. I have opinions, and I always try to keep those opinions separate from what I know is true. Uh, I think in, in our conversation these two hours, I've tried. I, I'm, I never hesitate to give my opinion about certain things, but I would never pretend that I that that's a substitute for knowledge. Hey, that's, uh, that's got to be it, man. Thank you so much, Richard Dolan, author of UFOs in the National yeah. Security State. I see from your website, and you're <laughs> gonna be at the International UFO Congress in Lachlan, Nevada, February 23rd to March 1st next year. Richard Dolan, thank you so much for joining us on The Paracast. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Rich. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.